Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Over the years, there's been the whole notion of autism, and in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of question about it, how prevalent it is, why we seem to be seeing it more. Ayesha Lola is a psychiatrist in Central Florida. She has graciously agreed to sit with us and talk a little bit about the nature of autism, and we'll begin in a second, but it's very important that I point out that any individualized treatment program has to be a clinical decision between the parents and the doctor. So we may bring new ideas for you to bring to your doctor, but we are not necessarily recommending any particular treatment. Okay. With that in mind, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. And why are we seeing so much more about autism? It seems that the frequency or prevalence of its diagnosis has exploded in the last couple years. Is it that it's more prevalent or are we diagnosing it better? What we are seeing is a great increase in prevalence and diagnosis. And I think part of the issue is that we are just better at diagnosing. There's something that's very important for our audience to know, and that's for people who have autism, there's a wide spectrum and a wide range within that. So although clinicians may be excellent at diagnosing people who are on the severe end of the spectrum, we are now getting much better with diagnosing those who have mild symptoms. And that is really excellent in terms of long-term treatment and care for those individuals. So we're recognizing the signs and symptoms better. We're trying to get access to care for those individuals. And we're seeing better research, including genetic testing and other interventions. That's very helpful. Brings up a good point, though, because we are now diagnosing or including in the diagnostic category, in the diagnostic grouping, to say it better, people who have more subtle or softer symptoms, we're expanding the umbrella. It makes for a very different approach. Yes, it, it does. And for autism spectrum disorders, the umbrella term, but for kids who have autism or the true autism spectrum, the true autistic disorder, the average age of diagnosis is around three years of age. People who have Asperger's disorder, they are generally, they have normal or high intelligence and their average age of diagnosis is closer to age 12. So we see some individuals aren't even getting diagnosed till their late teens or young adulthood and they might have have very mild symptoms, but they still exhibit some of the core features. And I want to go over some of the core features. I remember memorizing that pervasive developmental disorders of which autism is a part is based on deviation, delay, and distortion of development. What do we mean by that? Physical development, mental development? What do we mean by that? autism spectrum disorder really encompasses three main areas. The first is impairment in social interaction. The second is impairment in communication. And the third is impairment in either restricted or repetitive behaviors. And I'll give you some general warning signs and symptoms. However, again, there's individual variability across these symptom clusters and each child may not exhibit each and every symptom. In terms of the social interaction, signs and symptoms to look for are a child who does not meet eye contact or has poor or limited eye contact. They may not have peer relationship according to their age level. The peer relationships may be non-existent or to a younger developmental age. 
typical children, when they go to school and they, they're drawing or making projects in class, they'll come home and show their parents what they did in school that day. Children with autism may not do this. They may not seek to have that interaction with their parents and show them things. They may have trouble with social play because play is the language of children. Children with autism indeed do play, but their type of play is different. The qualitative play is different. For example, they may use a train as an object rather than making up a story about the train. So that's the social area. In terms of the impairment in communication, this again is variable. It can range from total lack of spoken language to children who have language, but they may use it in different ways. For example, they're unable to have a conversation with other kids or adults. They may talk about things they're interested in, but the conversation may not be reciprocal. They also may be unaware of social language use, and we call that pragmatics. So they may not understand slang or general kind of everyday talk that other children or adults may use. And again, they may lack make-believe play or social play. The third area is restricted or repetitive behaviors, and some of these behaviors may look like a child who has obsessive-compulsive disorder. For example, these children may be overly focused on a particular object or toy. So they may spend hours staring at a ceiling fan because they like the movement that the fan is doing. They also may have certain routines such as hand flapping, body movements, and they may be really overly interested in the wheels on a train rather than the train as a whole object or toy. So these are some of the signs and symptoms. And I always say if parents have some concerns, parents should seek medical help to get full assessment and diagnosis. It's the parent's index of suspicion that will lead to getting the child in for further testing. Should they see a psychiatrist or a pediatrician? Excellent question. In the United States, all pediatricians are doing developmental delay assessments at various age milestones or well-checked visits, and there should be more complex autism evaluations done at 18 and 24 months. However, in a general pediatrician's office, they're limited in time, and although they may be excellent at diagnosing children who are more on the severe end of the autism spectrum, we're really quite concerned about the kids who have very mild symptoms getting missed. And so I tell parents, the first step is always talking to your pediatrician or talking to the school and asking them who they might refer the child to if the child is a school age. But the professionals that are, have the more detailed assessments are going to be child psychiatrists, child neurologists, and or developmental pediatricians and psychologists who are trained in administering assessments for young children. The types of assessments that we administer, is it related or complicated by the fact that these kids have such a difficult time communicating? How do you assess somebody who may not be communicating well? They have assessments that can be done for children who are nonverbal, but you bring up a really good point, and that is, although today we're talking about autism and autism spectrum disorders, there are other conditions that can mimic this diagnosis, so it's really important to get a thorough assessment. The first thing that comes to mind is a child who has a speech or a language delay. If a child has a primary communication problem, they are going to have difficulty developing play and other things that we just talked about. So it's really important that you go into your pediatrician, explain your concerns, and then they'll refer your child for a speech and language assessment. 
if that is found to be the issue, then the child can get interventions for that. However, for autism, there are a number of nonverbal tools that clinicians can use to help in the diagnosis. What about mental retardation? It seems that so much of the gross manifestation of autism is what appears to be mental retardation, intellectual deficiencies and the like. How do you separate those? Yes, absolutely. There are a number of assessments that can be done, for example, IQ and achievement testing. Now, typically in school-age children, you're going to wait until they're five, six, or seven to do the more comprehensive battery of intelligence testing. But I will say for parents, if their child has an autism spectrum disorder, often some signs are present from the very beginning. Here, we're looking at not so much the communication portion, but we're looking more at the social does the child have limited social skills to begin with? And also some of the restricted repetitive behaviors that can help to differentiate a child with an intellectual disability. And for intellectual disability, often there are screening tests done, such as testing for Down syndrome and everything that might be more apparent earlier on. Are there any physical manifestations? Are there any medical issues that can be looked at or can be triggers that the parent should take a look and explore the possibility of autism? Yes. For most children, they're not going to have a typical medical issue that's going to pop up. But for children who are more on the severe end of the autism spectrum, there are certain genetic conditions that can be tested for and often are done. For example, there are conditions such as Prader-Willi syndrome. There are conditions such as some of the other genetic syndromes that genetic testing can pick up very early. And these are the kids who will have a more typical facial or syndromic quality that the doctors will pick up early in the first year. I've always been impressed with the notion that autistic kids at various levels, and I think it's important to say that if there is anything about autism, it's uneven across so many. It's not an absolute, the kid has autism and he's going to act a certain way. There's every shade of gray here. Yes. But there is a lack of sharing enjoyment and a lack of making believe. Are those good points to start on? Yes, they are, absolutely. And what you will see is that, again, for example, the child may have social interactions with his or her parents, but the quality is somewhat different. For example, your child may come and want to sit in your lap, but it may not be to seek a hug. It may be to sit on your lap so they can get onto the computer. So the quality is somewhat different. And I always say if parents have some level of concern, the sit and wait approach really doesn't apply to autism spectrum disorders because we know that early diagnosis and early treatment are the cornerstones of successful treatment for these kids. And that, of course, leads directly into the question, do we have any sense of what we can do to prevent it, to intervene? Where does it come from? Do we have any idea? We know that there is a genetic component to a large degree, and that is being studied. However, it may not be in every generation, it may skip generations, and we don't know exactly how these genes are inherited. They're multifactorial, meaning there are many different components that go into it. We simply don't have a great answer today what causes autism. We do know that there's certain things that can mimic autism-like behaviors, for example, lead toxicity. So depending on where you live and where your child is, part of the workup is to get a lead level for your child to make sure that there's not been exposure to lead-based paint or, for example, some children mouse toys that had lead-based paint in them. 
So there are different conditions that can mimic it, but it's always prudent for the parents to seek a full assessment. And of course, the very widespread notion of autism in mercury, which has been suggested and then disproved, it's yes. still out there. It's still out there. It's still out there. And, you know, I really urge parents that the internet can be your friend or your enemy. But if you're going to the internet to seek answers for this, really go to reputable sites and don't go to a single person's blog to get the bulk of your information. A great website is www.autismspeaks.org. They have a wealth of information for parents, clinicians, Everything is out there and you can contact them. They will help you get in touch with professionals in your local area and they just have a wealth of information available. That's extremely helpful. So someone comes along and you have made the diagnosis of autism and again this varies with the age. What types of treatments are there? You mentioned that there are a whole catalog of possibilities. What should a parent expect? Absolutely. Now, the first step is getting the comprehensive assessment, and then treatment is always individually tailored to your child's needs. It's always an individual plan. And medication is only used as adjunctive treatment, so we're really the focus is on some of the behavioral therapies. First and foremost is going to be speech-language therapy, and this will help the child develop more age-appropriate communication skills. The speech-language pathologist can work with the child in the school, in the home. It can be tailored and help the child also with social play and those developmental milestones. So speech-language therapy, occupational therapy is very helpful for fine motor skills, things such as handwriting, dexterity, playing with toys. Physical therapy may be indicated if your child has some trouble with gross motor skills. There are specific types of behavioral therapies for children who may have aggression or may have self-injurious behavior. This is called applied behavioral analysis. It's a very focused type of treatment. The clinician will meet with the child and the parents initially and get a comprehensive assessment of what problematic behaviors are occurring. And then they will tailor a behavioral plan based on rewards and based on decreasing the level of the significant behavior. Who provides these services? Where does a family go? Typically, if your child is in school, some of these services may be obtainable through the school system. I urge parents to, when they, they go in for their diagnosis, talk with their clinician about how to get these services and what's the best way to navigate the very difficult process within the school system. Because the schools will provide some degree of treatment. There are also specialized schools that have these services available, and these are specialized, so they're not the first level of intervention. If your child is more towards the severe end of the spectrum, they may be able to go to one of these specialized schools. But general schools in your area, many have specialized classrooms that are tailored for children with developmental delays and or autism. These classrooms may have a total of four to six children, one teacher, and one or two aides. So it's really a much lower student-teacher ratio so that the teacher can help more with some of the behaviors. But for parents, they should start with their clinician, get the diagnosis, ask all your questions, because many questions will keep coming up, and then work with your clinician to get to all these different services. And the parents have to be part of the treatment as well, because they need to learn how to handle their child, their special need child. I would imagine that's a fairly good challenge in and of itself. 
Absolutely, and and it's difficult for parents to hear this diagnosis and to navigate things that come with it. However, we know that every child has strengths, and children with autism may have a love for art, may have a love for playing with animals. Their strengths can be tailored into their treatment program, and we can use some of these things to help them. It is a difficult process for families, but the first step is getting in to see a trained clinician, and then early ongoing intervention will be the best chance of success. Earlier on, you said that there are a lot of the symptoms that present as if they're an obsessive-compulsive disorder, the lining of things up, the routines, the types of frustrations and the way they manage challenges, and we do give them some of the same medications when they need it that are used for obsessive compulsive disorders or even certain of the antipsychotics which may overlap with the obsessive compulsive treatment endeavors. How widely used are the medications and are they overused? Where, Where do we put this? Medication use is considered adjunctive, meaning it's an add-on treatment for those children or teenagers who might need it. But the cornerstone of treatment are really behavioral and other therapies. Children with autism may also have what we say comorbid depression, anxiety. They may have self-injurious behaviors. They may have rage episodes or outbursts. And for these children, then we add on medication. The caveat with medication is if your child has autism, we start medication at an even lower dose and we titrate up more slowly because these children are more susceptible to some of the side effects. We use the full range of medications that we use for children who might have depression, anxiety, ADHD, etc. There are currently two medications in the U.S. that are approved for children who have autism and irritability or aggression, and they are risperidone and aripiprazole. Again, these medications should only be used adjunctively and under the care and supervision of your of your medical professional. And to state the obvious, we all know this is a reality. It's not a pleasant reality, but sometimes taking care of an autistic child can be quite a... It can be a handful, and it can yeah. exhaust people. They become frustrated, and they may go to the doctor and say, I can't handle this anymore. We have to medicate him, which opens up a huge door, and I'm sure it happens more frequently than we would like it to. But it worries me about the attraction to medications. I can imagine you face this all the time in your practice. Yes, and I and I see children and adults who have autism in my practice, and I will say that with medication, if your child requires medication, for example, severe rage outbursts and self-injurious behavior, then for that parent, we may decide to do a trial of medication. But it's always important that they are getting some type of respite. The parents are able to get from their local agencies there are autism specialists who work in the school and in the community, and it's important for parents they might seek a support group or contact with these agencies. For example, it might be akin to a case manager for their child. So there are, for severe children, there are ways to get respite care for the parents, but medication is only used as part of a comprehensive treatment plan. It's never used alone without the other ancillary services. If your child has severe aggression, again, we always look to see if there's a cause for that. Was there a sudden change? Might the child have an ear infection or some infectious process that they can't communicate their needs to you? So we always look at kind of the antecedent behavior. Is this new? Is this a change? What might be causing it? Parents need a lot of support. 
And obviously, therefore, if there is someone in a family with autism, it is a full-time job that requires a lot of commitment, a lot of love, understandably at times a little frustration, but yeah. with the combination of all that you talked about, we can hopefully give the family and the, the child some decent quality of life. Ayesha Lull is a psychiatrist in Central Florida. She has been very gracious to talk to us about a very real problem that confronts many families, and we hope that this information here will be a bit helpful. Thank you so much for being with us.